0: This past couple of weeks, we've been in a series, and the series has been called Last Week. And in these last few weeks, um, we've been slowing down on the last week of Jesus. The Bible writers did that, so we're like, let's do that. Let's focus in on the last week of Jesus. And last week, um, we, we celebrated and remembered and reflected on the cross and the resurrection. And it was amazing. It was a blessing. And it was like so, so good. And, and many of you guys are here for that. And ugh, such, a, such, a, such a great weekend last weekend. Um, and I bet a lot of you guys thought was like, all right, well, we're done now with that series. Well, you're wrong. We're not done with the series. This is the last message of the last week's series. The reason why is because there's actually something that happens the day of the resurrection. Right after the resurrection happened, there's something else, another event, another moment, another story that's found in the book of Luke that I think is going to be the perfect way to end this series of the last week. So we're not... We're not fully done with that last week. There's one more thing that we have to talk about. And it's so important for us as we conclude the series to think about how are we going to live post-resurrection. After the resurrection happens, what needs to happen? What needs to change? What needs to happen for us? And the, the reason why this is going to be so important is because what we're going to reveal, what's going to be revealed to us in this story is one of the reasons why... The disciples actually changed after the resurrection. We talked about that. Like the disciples were one way. They were fearful and scared before the resurrection. Afterwards, they were bold, brave, preaching in the streets, all that kind of stuff. What was it? What changed their minds about it? What specifically? We're going to be dealing with that and focusing on that today. So let's pray and let's finish our series. Let's finish this strong. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, so much for the chance To look upon and reflect and to allow the story of the cross and the resurrection, the last week of your life, to change us. Lord, you've been blessing us amazingly in the last few weeks. Lord, once again, open our minds, open our eyes to you. Near me, pray. Amen. Gary Habermas is a scholar, New Testament scholar. He wrote a book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Listen, Listen to his statement here. He says this There is virtually, there is virtual consensus. Among scholars who study Jesus' resurrection, that subsequent to following Jesus' death by crucifixion, his disciples really believe that he appeared to them risen from the dead. Atheist scholars believe the disciples, uh, atheist scholars believe the disciples believe they saw a resurrected Savior. Okay, so the statement he's making here is that scholars believe Jesus, the disciples really saw a resurrected Jesus. But not just Christian believing scholars. Even atheist scholars admit that they really believe that the disciples really believed Jesus resurrected. You guys with me? And the atheist scholars are kind of like, we don't know if he actually did, but it's very clear that the disciples really believed they did. Like, it wasn't a conspiracy. It wasn't a hoax. It wasn't like a, a plot to trick everyone. They really, really believed this. And so he shares some other um, uh, statements from actual atheist scholars. Okay, So check this out. From uh, atheist New Testament scholar, Gerd Ludeman. Did you guys know that there are atheist Bible scholars? There are. And it's cool, actually, and they provide a lot, right? But Gerd Ludeman, a famous uh, New Testament atheist scholar, said this, It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's like, we have to admit, based on the evidence, they really saw something. They really saw something. I don't know if it's a, if it's a real resurrection, but they saw something that changed them. Paula Friedrichson from Boston University says this, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus. That's what they say. And then all the historical evidence we have afterwards attest to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, that they must have seen something. This is crazy. This is really cool, right? This is pretty awesome. They, they, they admit something happened. Like this was so big. Looking at how they lived, what they did, how they responded, the, 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 the text, the evidence, all the things point to, they saw something that changed them completely. Now if you were to... Talk to one of these, these disciples in the book of Acts. So post-resurrection, right? You would imagine that this is like, this is their thing. Like this is probably all they talk about, right? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Death, death, resurrection, crucifixion, all that stuff. And then he was raised from the dead. I bet you like that's all they talked about all the time. Because like that was, their, that they had this undying conviction that Jesus was dead and he was raised from the dead. They had this undying commitment to the point where they would give their lives... For the truth of, I saw Jesus die, and then three days later, I saw him get up and he talked to me. You'd imagine that this was like all they were about. And you, could, you could imagine them hanging out with each other, talking about, like, oh man, I can't believe it was, that resurrection is crazy. He showed us, like this guy Thomas, this guy Thomas, he actually put his finger in his wounds, in his scars. Like he's crazy. And Thomas would be like, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking, that was insane, but that was so amazing. Right? Like this was what they were all about. And then if you were talking to them, I think the question we would all have is, hey, hey, hey Peter, Andrew, tell me, what was it like? And they would say, what was what like? I said, so, what do you mean? The resurrection. What was the resurrection like? Clearly this matters to you so much. You're willing to suffer and die for these kind of things. Well, it must have been amazing. What was the resurrection like? Like that moment when that stone was rolled. When, the, when, when Jesus came out, was he, was he glowing? Was he gold? Was he, was he white? Like, what was, what was it like? And they would, you know what they would have said? I don't know. I wasn't there. We missed it. And you'd be like, what? What do you mean you missed it? Like, this is everything you are about. Like, this is your life now. But then you missed it? Yeah, I don't know what to tell you. We weren't there. They missed it. They missed the resurrection. They missed the single most important event in human history. They missed it. Why? And that's the question I want to begin us in our conversation today. How come none of them were at the tomb? His most devoted followers who'd give their lives for the truth and the witness of the resurrected Jesus. How come none of them were there? Now the short answer is, obviously, they didn't believe. didn't understand they didn't really get it that's that's the short answer but we need to dig deeper into that the reason why we have to dig deeper into that is because the reason i think the reason they didn't believe and they didn't understand the thing that caused them to miss out on the single most important moment in history that only them only they were aware of really right they were given that message they were the only ones in humanity to be able to have the opportunity to see this. Right? Like talk about like a ch- once-in-a-lifetime, once-in-eternity opportunity, and they missed it. And what I think is the reason why they missed it is also still the reason why you and me, we miss out on what God is doing in our lives. And you and me, why some of us still don't believe, why things still are not clicking for us spiritually, I think it's the same exact reason. And, and this story found in the book of Luke will reveal to us what that thing is. And so, we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 24. And what's interesting, we're going to get to this later, in Luke chapter 24, this story is only found in the book of Luke. And there's a reason for that that we're going to get to later. So, after the resurrection happens... This story shows up. Let's read it. Now that same day, that's why I say it's happened on the same day of the resurrection. Now that same day, two of them, two disciples, not one of the 12, uh, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things, happen, t- these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along them. Walked along with them. So, um, after this moment, they're, they're walking, and they're talking, but they're probably depressed, they're having a hard time, they're like, I can't believe this happened. What were you doing? What were you thinking? What did you see? You know, all this stuff. Trying to process this, this tragic, tragic event. Jesus shows up. And we're going to look at the rest of the story. But if you look at the rest of the story, everything else that happens is pretty, like, common Jesus-disciple interaction. Right? You have Jesus, he asks a question. Disciples give Jesus attitude, they give some sass, they like, kind of like talk back against Jesus, kind of like, that's kind of weird that you would say that. And then they would give an answer, and then they would be wrong, which is kind of what usually happened with Jesus and disciples. And then Jesus would correct them, and they would kind of have a nice moment. He even, at the end of the story, sits down with them for a meal, breaks bread like he did in the Lord's Supper. Right. So very, very like traditional, normal Jesus-disciple interaction, except for one extremely important detail. And this detail is, is, is something that we kind of, we read, and we're very interested in it. But we don't really understand how this detail plays into the whole point of the story. So here's the detail. They were walking down the road. Right, we, we read this part. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. This is the detail. But they were kept from recognizing him. Okay? Strange, isn't it? These disciples who know a Jesus, they're walking along. Jesus shows up. But they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And we don't know why. We don't know if Jesus is purposefully somehow mystically, magically hiding his presence. Maybe there's a, it's a really foggy day. We don't know. We don't know if it's like they're just so depressed and so dejected that they can't really think about stuff. And they don't really know what's going on. And maybe we've had those kinds of days. All we know is that for some reason they were blind to the fact that Jesus was standing there right beside them. And so Jesus plays it coy. Like, this is a really unique side of Jesus. Jesus plays it real coy here, kind of pretends like he doesn't know what's going on. He's like, hey, so uh, what's going on, guys? What are you guys talking about? And they start to explain. And the attitude they give, I'm not going to put it on the screen, but the attitude is like, what? How do you not know? Who are you? Who are you? Where have you been? Are you been hiding in a cave somewhere? And Jesus is like, geez, man, just tell me. Well, what are you guys talking about? And they explain this. They said, He's talking about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel and what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see, see Jesus. So they give the information and they explain exactly what had happened. And this is, this is the facts of the story. This is the facts of what happened in the last 24 hours. But here's the interesting thing. These are the facts, but this is not the truth. These are the facts of the story, but that's not true. What is really happening is the way they explained it. And these guys, they heed this this report that there was a resurrection. But notice what they're doing. They're still leaving. They're walking away from Jerusalem. Meaning what? They didn't believe it. This could not have been a resurrected Savior some of us have still the body. Something's going on. I don't know. This is too much. I have to go home. I can't handle this anymore. So they're leaving the city, defeated, believing that everything was gone and they had lost. Now what happens is Jesus responds to that moment with a teaching, and we're going to get to that teaching in a little bit. And then after he's done, they're walking along and he teaches them. The story continues on as they approached the village to which they were going. Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. Again, Jesus is kind of messing around with them, but they urged him strongly, "Stay with us, for it is nearly evening; the day is almost over." So he went in to stay with them. They're having a good time. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Finally, they recognized him, and they're like, "Oh, Jesus!" And then he disappeared. He disappeared. From their sight. And then so they got up and at once returned to Jerusalem. What a weird story. Right, there's like a lot of interesting details here. A lot of interesting points to think about. Especially, like apparently post-resurrection, Jesus now has the ability to teleport, you know? Like what, where did this come from? How He never did this before. And there's a lot of things that we could look at. But what we have to understand is this story is written in such a way... This story is structured in such a way to help us point to, help us figure out what the main point of the story is. And it's not his new abilities. It's not necessarily the recognition or the inability to recognize Jesus, which is a really interesting detail. But it's something completely different. Now, um, some of you are familiar with the concept of chiasm. So chiasm, let me explain real quick. Chiasm is a literary literary device that ancient writers used to basically make a point. And what they would do is they would use parallels in a story or in a text to point to us to what the most important element of the story is. And so they would say, this thing happened. And at the end of it, there would be the counter parallel to that. And then this thing, and then right above that, counter parallel. And at the very center, there would be one part of the story or one statement that was unparalleled has no parallel, and that was the point. You guys with me? That's like the structure of chiasm. So we see this all throughout scripture. Interestingly enough, Luke chapter 24 is written chiastically. There's a chiasm here. And uh, I'm not going to make you guys figure it out. I'm just going to put it on the screen for you, and you'll see the parallels. Real simple. This is the chiasm of Luke 24. First thing you have is Jesus or the disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and they're sad. Next thing that happens, Jesus appears. And then it says they're kept from recognizing Jesus, then he teaches them. Then what happens afterwards is they eventually recognize Jesus. Jesus disappears and they go from Emmaus back to Jerusalem and now they're happy. You see the parallels and the counterparallels. So this chiasm, this structure, stay with me. I know this might be a little bit technical. But the point of this is that this points us to the most important part of the story. For us as, as, as English writers... The most important part of our things is the topic sentence. The first thing you say is the most important thing. That's the point. In this ancient writing, it's the center. That's the most important thing. So as you look at the chiasm, the chiastic structure, what's the most important thing? The teaching. What Jesus says in verses 25 to 27, the teaching that he gives these disciples, that is the most important thing. And we're going to focus on that right now. So let's look at the teaching. After they um, explained to him what happened... It says, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This teaching that the Messiah was always going to die and was always going to be resurrected, that is the point. And Jesus had taught this over and over and over again to disciples. But for some reason, they did not understand. It did not click with them. They just heard it. It went one ear out the other. In fact, Matthew says in chapter 16, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So like, that Matthew says, yeah, actually, he talked about it a lot. Like He just kept saying it. Mark records three different versions of it, chapter 8, 9, and 10, where Jesus explains this to them. But they just don't really get it. The truth is, according to Jesus, the Messiah must die. Now, here's the problem. Why didn't they believe it? When Jesus talked about it a bunch of times, why didn't they believe it? And this is so important because how many times do we sit here in the church and we hear the same message and we don't get it? Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand? Why wasn't anyone at the tomb? Right? He said it so many times, some of the disciples, they should have been standing in front of that stone, counting down, right? They should have been there saying 10, 9, 8, it's going to happen, 7, it's going to happen, 6. All right. That's not what they should have been doing, but they all missed it. None of them were there. Why? Why? You see, for the disciples... When they thought about the Messiah, they thought, Messiahs don't die. That was a truth to them. That was a fact. Messiahs don't die. No Messiah. The Messiah will not die. The Messiah does not get conquered. The Messiah conquers. The Messiah does not get suffer and get killed. No, Messiahs don't get crucified on crosses. Messiahs do not die. And then for Jesus, what is he thinking? Messiahs die. That is what they do. What is teaching them is the most important part of the Messiah Right? There's the teaching and the healing, and that's all great, and that's all wonderful. But Jesus is thinking, in my framework, in my understanding, the most important thing about the Messiah is that the Messiah must die. If the Messiah does not die, then it's not the Messiah. For the disciples, it's the complete opposite. Right? In, in the framework and the mindset of the disciples, they think, if the Messiah died, then it wasn't the Messiah. We were wrong. And that's why this whole moment is so, so hard for them. is because they truly believed Jesus was the Messiah. But then he died. The facts proved otherwise. We were 100% sure he was the Messiah. But he died. I guess we were wrong. I guess he was just a prophet, like the disciples said. I guess he was just a miracle worker. I guess he was just like this great teacher. But he wasn't the Messiah. How do you know? Well, he died. But for Jesus, Jesus is thinking, if the Messiah doesn't die, then it wasn't the Messiah. If Jesus ran away from the cross, if in the garden of Gethsemane and it was so hard and he was, you know, bleeding and it was like so challenging. and He said, you know what? I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving. If he did that, he would no longer be the Messiah. If the Messiah doesn't die, then it's not the Messiah. The thinking is completely backwards, isn't it? It is the complete opposite of what the disciples were thinking. And I want us to focus in on that idea that Jesus and his kingdom are completely backwards from everything they understood and they knew. For Jesus in his kingdom, up is down, left is right, But for the disciples, as they thought from a normal, worldly point of view, they could not understand because Jesus was completely backwards and completely reversed everything. Last shall be first, first shall be last, greatest shall serve, and servants shall be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Completely changed everything. Everything was completely backwards, and they just could not understand. Messiahs don't die. And then Jesus is thinking, yes, Messiahs die. And guess what? Messiahs get conquered. And then they die. And by dying, they conquer. For the disciples, they're like, what? That doesn't make any sense. And Jesus is like, yeah, it does in the kingdom of God. But they're working from a completely different page. And they don't understand that. And the reason why this is so interesting is because the book of Luke and the story of the the, the disciples going down to Emmaus, kind of confronting their inability to see things the way Jesus saw them and completely unaware of the reversal of things. What's really interesting is that one of the main points of the book of Luke, one of the main takes, one of the main themes of the book of Luke is that Jesus and his kingdom are completely upside down. That's actually one of the main points of Luke. Like, that's what he's trying to get across as he writes his account of the life of Jesus. Jesus is different, guys. Jesus is unlike anything that you've ever met, anyone that you've ever met, anything that you ever thought, any philosophy that you've heard. He's completely different. Let me show you how. And let me explain to you guys why this is the case and how you see this. What we can do is we can prove this by looking at the unique elements of Luke's gospel. What are, what's in Luke that's not in any of the other gospels? This is super interesting. In fact, I read this and I was like, really, that's not in the other gospels? But, and as I show these to you guys, I'm gonna show you kind of one theme and then three specific stories. You're gonna see that, oh yeah, that is really about how everything is backwards and different, okay? So the first one is that one thing that's unique about the book of Luke is Luke celebrates women more than any other book in the entire gospels, no amen for that? Come on. Right? More than any other gospels, Luke highlights women. And he highlights their prominence. He highlights their contribution. And he highlights their role. Unlike any other. And that's a complete reversal of that culture. Right? In that day and age, women were not very important. They could not be trusted. Their testimony was not valid in court. Boo. But then Jesus says, guess what? Luke says, guess what? Jesus, he values women. Look at their role. Look at what they did. Look how they con- contributed. So that's one of the things that we see, a complete reversal. Here are the three stories. I did not know this. Maybe you know this. You guys are better Bible students. Here are three stories that are only found in the book of Luke. The Good Samaritan, yeah. Zacchaeus, and the prodigal son. These are not found in any other books. But let's think about these three, the, three, these three stories and what are they really about? Where you have the the good Samaritan where the good guys are the bad guys. And the bad Samaritan, the bad Samaritan that hates the Jews, the bad Samaritan that wants to hurt the Jews, don't ever be in a room locked with a Samaritan. That Samaritan, he's the good guy. The bad guys, the Jewish priests, the Levites, the holy people, they're the bad guys. The bad guys, they're the good guys. That's the good Samaritan story, isn't it? Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the, the scum of the earth, Gives up all that he has. Goes from a bad guy, the worst guy, to the best guy. He gives all his stuff away. He goes from filthy rich to dirt poor in a moment because of Jesus. It's a reversal. It's a switcheroo. It's the opposite. Upside down, left is right. And the prodigal son. If you don't know the story, I encourage you guys to read the story of the prodigal son. It's a story about a son, a worthless, good-for-nothing son, takes an inheritance, runs away to do whatever he wants to do. He spends all his money with, with, with just like indulging the flesh and doing everything he wants to do. He, he abandons his home. He's lost. But at the end, the lost son is what? He's found. And then you have the, 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 the righteous, faithful son who stayed there the whole time. He's like the good one, but at the end of the story, he's judgy, angry, and hateful. Another reversal. Completely turned everything around. For the readers at the time, or the listeners at the time, they would have said, fathers, don't do that. You don't do that to children who do that to you. You cut them off. You disown them. You don't bring them back. And Jesus tells this parable, says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. Everything is backwards. Everything is upside down. And so, this story of the book uh, of, of Luke, chapter 24, the story of Emmaus, what it's really about is this teaching that the Messiah must die, but the disciples had the complete reverse thinking Messiahs don't die. And at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, at the very end of the story, he's flipping the narrative and flipping the story back to how it's supposed to be for them to understand guess what? Yeah, Messiahs do die. In fact, that's what Messiahs do. Every Messiah, every version of the story ends with Jesus dying on the cross because he's the Messiah, and that's what messiahs do. So what do we call that? And this is why this is important for us. What do we call it that disciples had a certain way of thinking, a certain way of believing that this is how things are that prevented them from seeing the truth? What do we call that? We have a word for that. That word is bias. Bias. An idea of how things are supposed to be, Based on some experience or some teaching from before that prevents you from seeing the truth. They had bias, and their bias was a very natural, reasonable bias. Messiahs don't die, conquering kings don't die, the savior of our kingdom is not going to die. That actually makes a lot of sense. In their thinking, also, dead people don't come back to life. Very reasonable. But guess what? That was a bias. And Jesus comes on the scene to say, that is all wrong. Messiahs do die. And guess what? Dead people do come back to life. Let me show you. Flipping the script, changing everything. That's what the book of Luke is about. And that's what's emphasized even in this last story. So here's what I want you guys to understand. Their bias led to their blindness. Blindness. You have to ask this about yourself as well. What biases do I have that are leading me to be blind? What do I believe about God, about how he wants me to live, about how he wants me to treat other people that are preventing me from seeing the truth? You see, if you cannot understand that Jesus is completely opposite of everything we think, you will never understand Jesus. Jesus. If we cannot wrap our heads around this great reversal and upside-downness of his kingdom, we can never effectively live in the kingdom. If we can't do that, we'll never really understand how and why we are supposed to treat people the way Jesus did. We have to realize that we have biases. And I know you guys probably know that. You have biases about maybe certain people, certain groups, people with certain habits. You have these biases toward them. But I want to I I focus the thought on biases that we have against God. What biases do we have against God and what he is capable of and who he is and how he loves and who he loves? Right? If the resurrection shows us anything If the resurrection shows us anything, if a dead man can come back to life, if the resurrection shows us anything, it shows us that we need to take our biases, take them in our hands, and throw them out the window. Because with God, the resurrection shows us that anything is possible. Anything is possible. Anything can be done. Like with God, anything is possible. And any bias that we have against him, we need to be very, 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 very careful or like the disciples, we will miss out on the amazing things that God is doing like the resurrection. Like what in our lives is that, you know? Like I don't think any of us would want to miss out on that but because of our bias, because of our blindness, we may miss out on amazing things that God is doing around you, in you, all over the place, through you, just because we think this is how God is. And God cannot be any other way. That this is what God wants, and God cannot want anything else. I feel like the resurrection tells us the story of the book of Emmaus, or the story of the book of Luke and Emmaus is God is saying, Don't put me in a box. Don't limit me. You don't even know what I got planned. And so I think it's just an appropriate way to, con- to end this series asking God to remove our biases to open our eyes like he did to disciples to see what God is truly capable of. For me, in this, in this kind of season of life, I feel really challenged by God to have more faith in him. And I've kind of shared throughout the last few weeks about my struggles with faith and trusting him and that kind of stuff. And I just feel like God wants to deal with my biases. And he says, Chris, you think I can go this far and you think I can do this. You are limiting what I can do. You are in the way. I need you to open your eyes and see that I am so much more. And I'm gonna be honest with you, it's scary to think that. It's scary to think like that. Because I don't know what I'm gonna do, I don't know where I'm gonna go, and I don't know what y'all are gonna think about that. But I feel challenged in my life right now that God wants me to remove those biases. He wants to deal with those biases that God is just this. And he wants to show, that, show me that he is so much more. And maybe that's what you need to do too. And that's what I want to close this message with. I want you to ask yourselves and think about and pray, God, show me my biases against you. What biases do I have that limit you? What, what things do I think about that the, the way I think things are and the way should be that is keeping you... From being who you are. How am I? How are my biases and my thinking and my beliefs getting in your way? Lord, deal with them. Deal with them and help me to get them out. Help me to throw them out the window. Open my eyes. I want that to be your prayer this week. Open my eyes, just like you did those disciples. I'm not totally with the backwards and upside down, left to right, all that kind of stuff, but God, lead me there. Lead me to the place to really understand how different you are. And let me get, let me engage in that and become a part of that. I don't want to be blind anymore. I think um, the last thing that I want to share, just to really, really just land this plane and close this message, and close this series. As I've reflected on kind of the things we've talked about, I really feel like God has spoken to me so much of these messages that I've prepared. And there are two really simple things that I'm taking away. And I don't know what you're going to take away, and maybe these are the takeaways for you, and hopefully you have some takeaway. And they're really, really simple. They're not going to blow anyone's mind. But the two thoughts, the two ideas that God is impressing on my heart through these last few weeks is I love you. I love you unconditionally. And like Elliot was saying, there's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. I love you, Max. I love you to capacity. I love you, infinity. That's what I need you to know, Chris. And the second one is, hey, have some faith. Have some faith in me. You don't know what I can do. Don't get in my way. Let me go. Let me do my thing. I'm God. Free me. Free me from the cage of your bias and believe me and trust in me. I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to do something that blows your mind that you didn't think was possible. Let me do that here. That's where I feel challenged as I I kind of close this series and as I kind of end this time with you and and this message and, and everything. I love you. Have some faith. And I hope that and I said this at the very beginning, the goal of this message, the goal of this series was not to give you, you know, little one, two, three steps to changing your life or, or little tidbits or little advice or tips for stuff like that. That was not the point, remember? If, if you remember, the point of this was to lift Jesus up and to honor him and honor him through the story of the cross and the resurrection and just raise him up. And my hope was that the conclusion of it, at the end of the whole thing, we would say, we'd look at him and we'd just say, Jesus is awesome, And I hope that's what you think, and I hope over the last few weeks that has become more clear in your mind. Because Jesus, He is truly, truly awesome, and He wants you to know that He loves you. He is beyond all the things in your imagination, but that beyond this, loves you. I think that's a great way to end our series. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm excited and kind of nervous that you're challenging me and and probably challenging many of us to deal with the biases that lead to our blindness, Lord. Father, I want to live post-resurrection the way I'm supposed to live, Lord. And God, I want to see you and, and know you as you truly are, but I can't I can't if I keep thinking in this worldly, right is right, left is left kind of a way. God, I invite you, for me personally, and maybe for the people in this room, to come and change things up. Move things around. Move the furniture, Lord. Flip things upside down in my life that I may see and know who you truly are. And that I may live the way you want me to live. And I may love and that I may serve the way you want me to serve. Lord, I ask for forgiveness. That I've limited you in my life with my biases. But Lord, no, no longer. Show us the way of faith. Help us to know that we are loved. We are loved unconditionally. Then, now, and in the future. And let us walk in faith. In your name we pray. Amen.